are listening to Working Our Roots podcast, hosted by the Geechee Gal Grio, Sarah Makiba. This podcast explores the abundance and complexity of Southern Black and Afro-diasporic experiences, lineages, movement, ancestry, magic, resourcefulness, the erotic, and healing. A play between root work, working roots, and the gifts we become present to and receive when we center, tend to, cultivate, and work our ancestral, personal, and communal roots. What's actually at the root of who we are. Through Afrofuturist, womanist, and black feminist and queer lenses, we will tap into spirituality, creativity, joy, healing, pleasure, desire, magic, time travel, nonlinear time, survival tools, ancestral veneration, intergenerational and interdimensional communication and healing, embodied technology, Afrogenics, and the portal that is the Black South. Peace, y'all. Welcome back for episode two of Working Our Roots podcast. I am so grateful to everyone for listening and sharing and engaging with episode one. We have always loved each other children. Pass it on. Shout out to Mama Lucille Clifton. Um, you can tell probably by the background noise, I am recording this episode outside. It is June 21st. There is nature, there are birds, there are bugs, there are cars, um, but I just needed to be outside today. So <laughs> that's where this is being done and I'm gonna do my best to um, edit it and also just stop talking when cars are zooming down the street like the speed limit is not 30. Um, anyway, again, <laughs> thank you to everyone who listened and shared, who hit me up, who told me what they thought, how the episode made them feel the types of things that they were thinking about that felt really good to me and I'm grateful um yeah just for the opportunity to show up to to speak what is true to me to share the things that I am learning that I am continuing to uh, unpack and unlearn and uncover and recover and I'm just grateful to be in loving community with y'all if you have found benefit in, in the podcast and any of my work, reading articles you've engaged and are interested in supporting, there are a few ways you can do so. I wanted to start with Patreon. Patreon is an opportunity to pour into my work each month at whatever amount works best for you. I have a couple of suggested monthly donations, but you are able to donate um, as little or as much as you want. You can head over to www.patreon.com slash Sarah Makiba, and I will share the links for that. Um, in the show notes, I also want to shout out and show gratitude to my first four patrons. Thank you so, so much to Kelly, Tamika, Sabrina, and Natalie. It means so much to me that you believe in my work, that you believe in me, that you are contributing um, and sharing and exchanging your abundance with me with what I have to offer. Um, just incredibly grateful. So yes, if you are interested, head on over to patreon.com slash Sarah Makiba. Um, for a more non-committal monetary donation option, I graciously receive 
uh, offerings via Cash App, that is at dollar sign Sarah Days, and via PayPal, paypal.me slash Sarah Makiba. And again, the links for those will be shared in the show notes. Um, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter uh, at Sarah Makiba. And additionally, another incredibly important role you can play in supporting my work is listening which you are doing now and sharing with others. As I said earlier, I'm so grateful for all of the reciprocity, all of the exchange, um, the energy of abundance, of love. Uh, for people who listened to the episode, who hit me up, people of all ages who shared it with their friends, people in my DMs or sharing it in their stories, talking about what it made them think and feel. Uh, that is really everything to me, in particular folks who said that they, uh, folks in the academy, black folks in the academy who said they were listening to it while they finished um, their finals at the end of the semester. That means a lot because I know I was talking hella shit and like it was resonating with folks because as I say, this shit is wild. So yes, thank you for listening and sharing and continuing to do so. I'm grateful, as I said, to be in community with you since the release of episode one in which i shared during the purple and green segment some of the incredible brilliant black people who have poured into my life who have made me possible who 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 taught me and continue to teach me um what i know and how i know it in uh the loving community that that knowledge and wisdom is rooted in i mentioned and lifted up queer walk podcast hosted by um montanique and nikita and as i said since the release of episode one um we learned on social media that co-host nikita at slade transitioned to uh the realm of the ancestors uh this was very shocking and heartbreaking i want to read a couple of tributes this was published by uh the howie hawkins green party website they said nikita slade was one of our favorite people she died suddenly on may 7th from an unexpected adverse medical event she was only 32. the greens have lost one of their most committed knowledgeable and talented organizers Nikita was a member of the Green Party in Syracuse, New York, and had been a member of the now disbanded International Socialist Organization. Before she completed her apprenticeship to become a union millwright, Nikita had been an organizer at the Workers' Center of Central New York. She was on the staff of Howie's 2014 campaign for governor of New York and was an advisor to our 2020 presidential campaign on policing and racial justice issues. On the Queer Walk Instagram page, um, co-host, uh, her best friend, Dr. Bunny Montanique wrote, We celebrate our brilliant sister, dear friend, comrade, haiku poet, and Lisa's only baby, Nikita A.T. Slade. Nikita is our hilarious, self-proclaimed curmudgeon, a black woman in the trades, Texas-raised organizer, worker of and for the world and proud proletarian black feminist. She is a lover of Luther Vandross, Fleetwood Mac, Dolly Parton, and Bruce Springsteen. She is a Tia, a beloved girlfriend, an original Black Lives Matter Syracuse member. 
She is one of the machetes. She is all of these things and so much more. She is loved and she will be missed. And um, yeah, like I said, this was heartbreaking. It was jarring. Uh, Nikita and I are the same age. Um, as I mentioned in the, the last episode, Queer Walk, Nikita and Money have built and nurtured and fostered such incredible community. Um, model transparency model divine radical friendship and love and community have modeled holding space for each other and their friendship and love for one another in addition to just the brilliance the work that they share the work of their hands and their minds and including the link to the website i referenced i'm going to share a link of queer walk podcast episode 58 uh, entitled Wellness and Whack Democrats Coming for Kamala. Nikita has a segment on the podcast, Nikita's Word, where she breaks down and makes accessible some uh, radical, far left, uh, organizing, social justice, uh, language, terminology, uh, theory, concept, event, and uh, just, you know, make it plain, offers all the critical uh, critical analysis, like I was talking about in the last episode. Like, well, look at it like this and see, this is what was, this is what was going on at the time that this was established. And these were the groups that agreed with it. These were the people that opposed to it. These were the people who were on, 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 <laughs> on either side of the fence. And if you don't actually consider this part, then you won't know this, which relates to what we're experiencing right now in this way. That's the type of, uh, that's the type of teaching that uh that Nikita that Nikita is known for and in that episode in particular um yeah she just broke down why Kamala wasn't trustworthy <laughs> and uh why Kamala Harris vice president Kamala Harris at the time she was uh you know not the, pre- the vice president yet why why she was not trustworthy um, why she could not actually affirm our, our liberation, um, the evidence of the cognitive dissonance and the hypocrisy and how a representative of uh, the, uh, the, criminal, the criminal injustice system um, could not offer what it is we actually need for our wellness and our liberation. And um, like I said, I'm going to share the episode, but every time... Every time our current administration says something, I'm just like, see, this is what Nikita said real quick. Um, just a few weeks ago, so I'm recording, not a few weeks ago, this is like a week ago. Time is whatever it is, the way it's moving. I don't know how it feels to y'all, but this shit is wild. And, and the world is so wild. But anyway, a week ago, Democracy Now! posted Vice President Kamala Harris has announced plans to work with Guatemala's government to block asylum seekers from heading to the United States. The efforts include further border militarization and a task force purportedly aimed at boosting anti-corruption efforts in Guatemala. Harris met at the presidential palace with Guatemalan President Alejandro Guillemete Guillemete on Monday, issuing a jarring warning, a jarring warning to asylum seekers forced to flee Central America over poverty, violence, and the impacts of the climate crisis. Do not come to the United States, Harris said repeatedly. The United States will continue to enforce our laws and secure our border. There are legal methods by which migration can and should occur, but we, as one of our priorities, will discourage illegal migration, and I believe if you come to our border, you will be turned back. Harris said. 
blocking migrants from requesting asylum in the U.S. or other countries that offer the relief is a violation of international law. In her remarks, Harris also failed to acknowledge how U.S. intervention and foreign policy in Guatemala and Central America have contributed to the root causes of why people flee in the first place. And then, of course, a couple of days after that, because this shit is wild, Post and Courier <laughs> posted that uh, Vice President Kamala Harris was in Greenville to promote COVID-19 vaccination campaign invoking the scripture that says to love thy neighbor vice president kamala harris on her tour of greenville promoted the government's vaccination campaign as part of a nationwide push this month now is it love thy neighbor or don't come i don't even want to spend so much time on this but the point is as i read these ridiculous things and these people that we were all told we had to vote for for harm reduction because it was somehow going to make us whatever that shit y'all was saying. <laughs> whenever I'm whenever I'm present and smacked in the face with the cognitive dissonance and the ways we have all been brainwashed and conditioned to be complicit in this violence, I recall uh, I recall the uh, insight and education and wisdom that Nikita A.T. Slay offered regularly, biweekly. Um, about what we're working with, about what we can actually hope for, about how we can or how we can actually organize and reimagine and deal with what was and reimagine and and sit with what was and 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 critically analyze and make sense of and make make the active changes to what what make revolution irresistible to make our freedom and our wellness and our loving community and our safety irresistible. Uh, these are things that I learned from Nikita A.T. Slade. So as I said, um, it is heartbreaking, it is sad, it is beautiful to know that she is an ancestor. I affirm and send love and ease and healing to co-host, best friend, soulmate, sister, Money Montanique, Dr. Money McCurchin, to all of the communities and loved ones um, of Nikita, the, the podcast, the Batty Brigade, her family members, her lovers, her friends, her colleagues, um, the people who knew her best, the larger community sending love and uh, ease and comfort in this nonlinear cyclical, cyclical thing called grief that deserves reverence that deserves far more reverence than the west and the united states of america gives it um sending love to everyone who is still reeling this tragic sudden loss and transition of nikita as well as just the ongoing madness that we are experiencing in year two of this global pandemic um and anti-black violence Nikita A.T. Slay, I am so grateful to have known you in the ways that I have known you. I'm so grateful to continue to learn from you. I am so grateful that you are our ancestor. I lift you up. I say your name. I encourage all of you listening to uh, send love to your loved ones, to send love to those uh, mourning and grieving. Nikita, uh, sending love in particular again to money and um 
yeah, give grief, give grief the reverence it deserves. We descend from people who honored grief rituals. We descend from people that prior to colonization knew that life is hard, that people die, that people leave your life, that relationships end, that we get sick, that there are many things out of our control and we must grieve that. And if we don't, the pain don't go away. The loss don't go away. The pain doesn't even necessarily go away as we continue to grieve, but we must honor the lessons, the stillness, the space that grief requires. episode I have been sitting on this conversation for months um yeah just pleased and thrilled uh this is a conversation between um 20 year friend group uh my mother Natalie Days um and her good friend uh, Miss Barbara Edwards and Miss Jan Spencer and these are women, of course, my mother, but uh, Ms. Jan and Ms. Barbara, who I've grown up under, who I have known, I want to say since before middle school, to be honest, um, whose feet I have set at, who have, who have poured into me, who have raised me, who have um, been possibility models to me, who have been healers, who have been like, yeah, just badasses, uh, uh, magical, magical black women, black women who are who are magic and um yeah i'm just so thrilled we talk about all of the things as it relates to working our roots podcast the south uh gender sexuality non-linear time um unlearning things we thought things we didn't migration uh just really 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 pleased to share this with y'all i want to do some introductions and just give a little context for who you are about to hear from and then i will um come on at the end after you've got to know them and gush some more about what a blessing they are so the first voice um and actually so the three of them they have a standing weekly zoom call um and so i had asked my mom to ask if uh one day during the week during one of their zoom calls if i could hop on and um just ask them some questions because i'm all about intergenerational communication intergenerational community and like i know them like i said they've been in my life my real life and um they be on that good shit so i hopped on to one of their zoom calls they graciously uh um, let let me come through and so um they are no introductions as i just wanted to be respectful of the time that they carve out for the, for themselves and their healing and their relationship but i um as i said want to give some brief introductions well these are actually their formal introductions because like this is how they describe themselves and then i just want you to like again hear them talk about themselves but like i said they are bad so the first person you are going to hear from is Miss Barbara Edwards. Miss Barbara is a Reiki master, teacher, and intuitive reader, medicinal and energy, who has practiced and taught energy healing for over two decades. 
Ms. Barbara has been interested in the healing arts for more than 40 years, applying her gifts in Africa and the Caribbean while serving as an ordained teaching minister. When she returned to serve in the U.S., she developed her teaching and healing skills along with a career in community service and advocacy. In addition to being an empath and intuitive reader, she is a Reiki master teacher, an ordained minister, a certified mediator and counselor. Her life revolves around service to her fellow man and she is thrilled to offer her skills to our community. Moving to South Carolina in 1996, she worked with rural underdeserved Moving to South Carolina in 1996, she worked with rural underserved communities in the southern US to help accomplish land-related goals. She worked on housing issues for AIDS patients, always a burning passion to help find pathways to success and healing in situations that appear difficult or hopeless. And um, you will hear during the conversation, Ms. Barbara mentioned her daughter, Sarah, um, uh, not to get it confused with me. Um, and Sarah Edwards, shout out to her, is a midwife and mother and host of the Educated Birther podcast, um, which says we are going to provide you with evidence-based answers to your questions surrounding pregnancy, birth, and your overall health and well-being. We will chat with listeners in all stages of life, health professionals, and so much more. And um, Sarah, as I said, is a midwife, is a is a healer, and shout out, she gave me, she put me on a vitamin regimen and um, this herbal blend mix that has greatly contributed to um, my menstrual cycle, who has, which has been like, which has had me down bad for as long as I've been menstruating. I usually PMS like two weeks, two weeks before my period actually starts, and I'm talking symptoms such as bloating, as um, wanting to fight everybody, being sad, feeling nauseous, terrible cramps, and that's two weeks before my period, and then really horrible cramps for about three days of a seven-day period, and um, since I have been listening to her and doing what she says and taking her herbal blend, my period has gone down to uh, a good four or five days. And I didn't even notice I was PMS until three days before the start, which is big for me, y'all. 12 days, 14 days out, I'm generally like, everybody get on my nerves. I want to fight. I feel horrible. I can't go on. Everything sucks. And this is like every month. So shout out to Sarah. Check out um, her podcast. And I will um, include links to her website um, and the podcast in the show notes. Her oldest son, Ahmad, actually just graduated from high school. Shout out to him. Ahmad was born on uh, my 13th birthday in 2002. And just real quick anecdote. So um, when Sarah was giving birth, we, my mom, my brother, and I, I want to say we were taking a road trip to Vermont to visit a my, one of my mom's college friends, something like that. But Miss um, Barbara, we brought Miss Barbara along to bring her to Baltimore where her daughter was giving birth. And um, this was October. Uh, I was born October 4th. This was October uh, 2002. And it was during the saga of the DC sniper. And what I remember most vividly is that on this trip, the lines at the gas station were all the way out the street because nobody wanted to pump their own gas because there was an anonymous unknown sniper killing people 
<laughs> and the only reason I laugh is because this shit is wild as hell. And um, there's this group called Spillage Village, this artist, artist collective. And one of the artists, Mariba, has a lyric in this song called um, End of Days. And the lyric is, it's been like apocalypse since I've been on the teeth. And like, real shit, y'all, this shit is wild. That was just... <laughs> An aside, but a related aside in terms of like the type of shit that we have been living through um, since we've been here. But anyway, yeah, shout out to Miss Barbara. Shout out to my good sis, Sarah. Uh, the next person that you will hear from is Miss Jan Spencer. Miss Jan Spencer is a performing singer slash songwriter, quilter, and a veteran of stage, video, and television performance. Relocating from Detroit to South Carolina in 1995 to warm up and slow down, she has performed in venues around the globe and with such greats as Dizzy Gillespie, the late Lou Rawls, the late Aretha Franklin, Bonnie Ray, and Tony Bennett. She has performed in club and concert settings with jazz combos and solo at the piano. She has also worked as an arts education consultant and artist in residence with student and professional groups and as a facilitator and developer of curricula for racism studies. From her home base in the Lowcountry, she sings a wide variety of music, from the soulful sounds of Motown and the blues to the current song stylings of Nora Jones, Camille Bailey Ray, and at the piano, her original compositions. Miss Spencer is also an improvisational quilt artist who has developed and presents lecture performances based on her work creating G's Bend inspired quilts. Ms. Jan holds a BA in Education Psychology, an MED in Creative Arts and Learning, and has completed extensive doctoral level study in organizational learning. <clears throat> Shout out to Ms. Jan. The last voice you will hear from, which you may be familiar with, because sis got a lot of followers on Instagram. <laughs> um, this is my mom, Natalie Days. Uh, for more than 30 years, Natalie Days has developed and facilitated interactive learning experiences for educators, students, and audiences in schools, universities, conferences, and other venues. Her belief in the positive power of stories is demonstrated in her speaking as well as in the performing and visual arts. A self-taught visionary artist, Natalie's painting and functional pieces arise from the tradition of storytelling. She has been married to Ron Days, her cheerleader, supporter, and committed partner in creativity and life since 1985. They have two children, Sarah and Simeon, by birth, and one, Sabrina, by heart. She earned a BA degree from Vermont College in 1992 and an MA in the area of creativity studies in 2014. Best known as Miss Natalie on Nick Jr.'s award-winning television program, Gullah Gullah Island, Natalie is committed to making presentations that entertain, educate, empower, and inspire. And so, like I said, I am pleased to share this conversation with y'all. I cried during this conversation just like I cried in episode one because black people are magic. Um... And what we know and how we know it is rooted in something sacred, is something divine. And that is what we must cultivate. That is what we must nurture. That is what we must uncover. Um, so again, excited to share. I hope that you enjoy. I hope it stirs up something beautiful inside of you. Um, 
but content warning or brief mentioning of lynching as well as sexual assault. And these are traumatic experiences that are common experiences for black people. Check it out. I hope that you enjoy. First question that I wanna get into, as I said, this is focusing on the South. And um, I wrote an essay, Be Here Now, The South is a Portal, about the South being this location of, um, of magic, of the integration of Africana and indigenous ways of knowing and being this site of possibility. And I know that um, my mother has now lived in the South for the majority of her life. I'm not sure about either of y'all, but I know that at some point y'all came to the South. Mm -hmm. And so I'm interested because also what I'm only just now becoming present to with my mom is that like, she's just a generation removed from the South. So I feel like most folks, at least my age, don't have that great a hang on the migration and movement of Black people and how we got where we got and why we were there and where our families were and why we were moving and that we are all around. So I just want to start with whether or not you, you, you identify as Southern women and your relationship to the South. So what brought you here if this is not your site of origin, um, what family connections you have had here even before you got here. And like, I remember mommy's talked to me a lot about coming coming to Buford and, and hearing, sensing, sensing beings being like, welcome, welcome, welcome. We were waiting for you. So I wonder if um, this, anyone can go first, but what y'all feel about that and think about that in your relationship to this space that we're in. Okay. Well, that, that's a pretty straightforward one for me. My father's uh, <clears throat> family is from Georgia, from Macon County, Georgia. They were uh, farmers, so they worked the land probably from before the end of slavery up until the point when my grandmother uh, took her children and started walking north. Uh, she said she had to come north because she had 14 children that lived and she had, I think, eight boys. And in Macon County, Georgia, they were hanging them. They had started hanging them every weekend. Then they went to two a weekend to please the crowd. And she said she knew that her boys were going to be in that number if she didn't get them out of the South. So she took what she called her lap and hand babies and started walking because my grandfather was not going to leave. He wasn't going to leave the farm. He wasn't going to leave the South. She had begged him and begged him. He wouldn't go, so she left. And she just started going. She worked along the way and worked her way up to New Jersey. And by the time she got to New Jersey, she did not have all her children with her. My father and his brothers, who were in like the second wave, <laughs> of, uh, had to come up and find her. And she settled on, on the uh, at the beachfront in uh, Neptune, New Jersey, wow. Asbury Park. So at the time, it was not like a white resort place. It was just a place the kind of country people lived, you know, and she settled there. And that's how I knew her all my life. Grandma that was at the beach, you know, we would go down there and go to the <laughs> boardwalk and everything. My father had a, a fear and a hatred of the South. 
he was saying he didn't even want to. He said, I don't even want to go past it. I don't want to take a train nowhere because it might go south. I don't want to take a bus nowhere because it might go south. Don't don't take my my body south. You know, never want to see Georgia again. So that I grew up hearing that all my life. On my mother's side, my grandfather was in West Virginia. I don't know why his family was in West Virginia. I'm sure that it was a remnant of slavery. But they crossed the Ohio River to get to Ohio. So I'm assuming that he was maybe not running, but but migrating. So neither one of my, my sides of my family were part of the industrial migration. They all came a, a little before that, looking for freedom rather than jobs. And um, my grandfather, uh, Haskins, on my mother's side, uh, when he got to Ohio, met my grandmother, and they got married. And they left Ohio towards the after the industrial mm -hmm. uh, migration and came to New Jersey. And that's where the two families met up in New Jersey. As a child, I never thought about the South. We weren't the family that went south to see grandma because grandma was in, in at the beach, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but at, but as I got older, I felt a pull towards the south. I decided that I was going to go back, find my ancestral home in Georgia, settle down on my grandfather's and great grandfather's land, and be a woman of the south. Well, I never got there. You know, one of my cousins did some research and she knew where the property was and all that kind of stuff, but I never even got there. A friend of mine, Susan Madison, moved to, she wanted to move to Hilton Head. They couldn't afford a place on Hilton Head. So she moved to this place called St. Helena Island. Nobody had ever heard of it. I didn't know where it was. I had no idea. So she said, well, come down and visit. I came down three times to visit her. And the third time I came to visit was uh, Heritage Days. I'm standing at the Heritage Day parade, crying, screaming uncontrollably, un out of control to the point where people were looking at me like, what is wrong with this woman? Could not stop. We went to um, the Avenue of the Oaks where the graveyard oh. is. Oh, God. Got outside the graveyard and almost fainted. Almost fainted. She had to like help me back to the car. I'm like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what this is. But I got back to um, where I was living at the time was in Cherokee, North Carolina. I had moved there for ministry. Got back to Cherokee and could not think of anything else but St. Helena. So I wrote, got a job came down, that was 25 years ago, came down to work down here, supposedly. And I waited until Sarah graduated. That's why it was, you know, a couple of years later, but I've been in the South for 25 years and I still don't consider myself a Southerner. And I just realized as I'm answering that question, it's probably because I've always been treated as a come here and not a been here. And I actually, Emory Campbell, after a while, I said, you know, when am I going to become a, a been here? He said, never. You weren't born here. You can't be a been here. 
You Henry loved to be the gatekeeper of that because he made that point to just about to me and to my mama. <laughs> <laughs> and he you know, yep. and, and uh, you know, that, that was his point of view. So it's valid that he had that point of view from for him. But we all came from here. Yes. <laughs> we all come here from Africa. So come here, been here. It's just the circumstances and opportunities that your family found while you were here instead of someplace else. That's my story and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I learned so much about you. I never knew. Me too. Wonderful. You know, good grandmother in the beach. I didn't know, but you didn't. Well, we had no occasion to talk about it, I guess. That's a lovely story. And then she started walking. What? Started walking because my grandfather, they say, was really mean. He wouldn't give her a train fare. He wouldn't give her a mule, she would say. He wouldn't give me a mule to carry my children. So she started walking. And I'm sure she stopped and did odd jobs along the way to get yeah. on the train and to get on a, yeah. I'm not even sure if there was a bus line, but there was always a train because they always wanted cotton and stuff from the South. That's amazing. That is amazing. It made me think of two things real quick. One, um, you 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 made the distinction between the industrial migration. And I know, I don't even know if I was ever presented with the distinction. It was just like the great migration. And we migrated for jobs, for better opportunities. I have a friend, Tamika Gadsden, who runs the Charleston Activist Network. And she actually refers to uh, her family who migrated to um, New Jersey from Wadmala Island as Jim Crow refugees. Um, I feel like we're very rarely given the, the context of what it was we were moving away from. Yeah, and, and, and what we were moving towards. Of, yes, and yes, what we were moving towards and then what we found there that was again out of our control, but what we, mm -hmm. what we nurtured while there. So yes, I love that. I love that so much. Who else? I, I just want to say that um, one of the other sons answers all those questions just magnificently, thoroughly, I mean, that was an incredible book, is an incredible book. Um, um, anyway, um, I could be next. I, I was in Detroit and um, Arian King Comer and I were very good friends uh, trying to figure out how to be artists in a world that didn't necessarily love us too much. We hadn't figured out all the racial stuff. I hadn't, maybe she had, I hadn't. Um, but I was divorced and uh, my family, my sisters were all over the country doing different things. And um, so when my son was, when he finished his second year of college at uh, Northwestern, I said, okay, he's, he's in, he'll finish because <laughs> he sees, he sees that he sees it. Uh, and I'm getting the heck up out of here. It's too cold. It's moving too fast. I can't think. I got to do too much just to, you know, keep food in my tummy. I just, I can't do any more of this. So Arian had been saying, she moved down here, I think two years before I did. And she, she had been saying, you need to come down here and at least have a look. And then she sent me this. Well, you couldn't see things on the phone in those days, but, um, birds in February weren't something we had in Detroit. And she would call me and say, listen to this, <laughs> in her very Aryan way. 
and there are flowers everywhere. <laughs> and um, I ignored her for as long as I could. And I said, okay, okay. It was May. We hadn't seen the sun in probably six weeks. No sun. And I came down here. I mean, I left. It was probably 30, 32. I came down here. It was 80-something. 80, 80 I said, what? So I was feeling like all empowered. And I came down and I started singing. That's what I had been doing all over the place. And I found work. And I went, I, I was supposed to stay for a weekend. I stayed for two weeks or 10 days or something. And my job, I told him I got sick and was in the hospital. <laughs> <laughs> and at that what time, I couldn't check. <laughs> it's sad to take my word. They knew I was lying. <laughs> and then, and I, I gave him my notice. Uh, yeah, after all that fury died down, I gave him notice. And, um, Lord have mercy, I put all my stuff and everything I could get in my car, everything I thought I'd need, I put in that car and drove. And Arian was going to Nigeria to study batik. She needed a house sitter. And I needed a place to stay while I got my bearings. And I needed work and she introduced me to Kitty Green, who um, had, uh, what was the name of that restaurant they had? Gullah House, which is, um, been a lot of other things in the interim. And I sang there on the weekends where I started and I started working this, anyway. I got warm and I was able to slow down and I was, you know, everything I had been doing in Detroit taught me how to do things here, what I needed. And I, see my, my grandmother's people, my grandfather's people, my mother's people, they are all from well, there's there are two little towns, Sharon, Georgia, Thompson, Georgia, uh, which is what's that town right on the other side of the border? Um, it's the largest city uh, in Georgia. Anyway, they kind of spread out from there. And when I learned that they um, about the the uh, when the when the uh, black coats were enacted here after the Civil War that a lot of Black people just like went to Georgia <laughs> because they said, well, it's not good there, but it is, we can't do this here. So I think that my, I think, and this, I don't have anything to back this up. I just have a feeling that my people got that message and went east, excuse me, went west over the, over the Georgia border because they didn't, they didn't get much farther. I mean, Atlanta was as far as they went. And uh, my grandfather, he owned a farm. He owned the farm, uh, but he, he had to do, uh, what did he do? He did mechanic work. He was a mechanic. He was the only mechanic in the town of Sharon where he lived and he had sons. And anyway, that he, he was there and I don't know anything, I didn't know anything about lynchings. I didn't know anything about burnings. I just knew that my grandfather, Mary, and he came up to work at Ford. She, he then sent for her and my mother and that they've been here ever since. Nobody considered, well, my grandmother would go back and visit every year. They did that. 
I didn't understand that because it was crowded in the car. <laughs> I went down with her one time on the bus and because I didn't, I had no concept. I grew up in a black community. We had everything we needed. We didn't, we interfaced with white people for education purposes. When we had uh, music contests, when we had to go shopping for something that wasn't in town. So I didn't really experience segregation as something that limited me. Like I couldn't go in certain places. There was a border that we weren't supposed to cross, but I did not know that until probably high school when I got old enough to drive and go get myself in trouble. But I didn't know that limitation. So I just went out into the world thinking, hey, Linda Johnson gave us like college money. I'm out. <laughs> so, but I had a, you know, it was a rude awakening to come. And actually, I, I learned most of what I know about Black history and racism and segregation and all the accoutrements for that from being here. I came down in 95. And here in South Carolina. Yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So do you do you feel like a southerner? No. Mm -hmm. I, I I feel like a Fakamia just because I I can't acclimate to I haven't been able to acclimate to the mindset. I'm a city girl. I mean I love living in the in the country. I love that, but I'm a city girl. Um there's stuff I like. <laughs> and, I hear that. Thank you. What about you, Mama? Well, I'm thinking as I'm listening because the one, the the rest, the question that you've asked all of us: Do we feel like Southerners? Mm -hmm. And it's like, no, I don't. And that's funny because I've been here most of my life. I was 22 mm -hmm. when I stepped off that Greyhound bus. I'm 60 now. Um, people keep talking to me and interacting with me like I'm a Southerner. As a matter of fact, I'm doing a podcast with this woman um, Thursday dealing with talking and dealing with Southern women and I'm have to deal with not feeling like a fraud in that conversation. And yet, as you mentioned earlier, I was just one generation removed. Every black person I knew when I grew up were Southerners. Mm -hmm. How we moved through the world was that of black Southerners. Mm -hmm. um, now, of course, my daddy and my mama had polished it off, polished it. Right. <laughs> and we were, you know, it had been polished in the, in the womb out of our voices. Um, but it's really interesting because there's so much in my voice now. <laughs> but this is also where I've spent most of my life. I came into my adulthood and womanhood here um, in the South. But I'm always very careful because I do know folk will be checking your bona fides. Well, where was your mama born? Well, my mama was born in the South. Well, where was your daddy born? Well, my daddy was born in the South. Well, uh, were they born in South Carolina? Well, no. No, they had, but they had nothing to do with that. And when people say to me, like, you were born in New York, I said, I had to be where my mama was. You know, what could I do? <laughs> That's right. So, uh, you know, it's just really funny because I do find myself in a lot of platforms now um, interacting from this space. Uh, you know, and I'm listening to Barbara and Jan's stories about their ancestors, and I'm thinking of what I don't know. Um, I can't tell you, like with my, my grandmother, we know she was born right around the South Carolina, uh, North Carolina border. That's all we know because her daddy gave her away when she was four years old. She remembers the train road, train ride to Virginia. 
She remembers this maternal her, grandmother. This is my maternal grandmother, Elizabeth. Her, her, her daddy left her with an old woman. She don't know who that old woman was. Old woman got tired of keeping her, called the police. Police woman took her away and gave her to the woman I know as my great grandmother, Sarah Louise. Wow. Sarah Louise couldn't have children. So she took, Elizabeth, she took Josephine um, and she changed her name to Elizabeth. And um, if her daddy ever came looking for her, you know, would he have found her? Because she changed her name. Not legally, there was never any legal adoption. Right, but right. She was raised by, um, by them. And then when she was 17, you know, the, the high school out where she lived, there was no place for her to go to school as a black girl. Um, and she looked very much like she was also um, indigenous. If you looked at her, you know, the texture of her hair, her structure, both, you know, Africans and indigenous um, Americans have that structure, but mm -hmm. she is very much, you know, you could easily decide either way, but we don't know. And her uh, school, that she, her, her grand, her mother sent her to this little school where she had to stay in a boarding house to go to school. Now, this was near Virginia Commonwealth University. And there were other black students who couldn't stay in dorms who stayed in the boarding house. And one was this young man from Connecticut. He was light-skinned it and came from a family with money. And he thought my grandma was real cute, seduced her and uh, left. And she found herself pregnant with my mother as a teenager. So, uh, you know, she goes back in shame to Petersburg, um, pregnant with this baby that comes out looking like her daddy might have, you know, might be white or he's <laughs> anyway you know reddish hair light-skinned baby and um i learned more about that from my mother even here the things that she has remembered and talked about because about how how poor they were how they struggled that that my grandma wrote her her the baby daddy he ignored her wrote the parents they ignored her um would send letters and so it was just the three of these women sharing a bedroom and, and there was another bedroom in the house that they leased out to boarders. And my grandma took in laundry and my grandma worked in domestic. She was in service. She worked in white folks' kitchens. Um, but they had this thriving little community that I'm learning about just in these months mm -hmm. about what well, the butcher there, he'd always like, if you go there, he'd say, I got this for Sarah. You know, he'd have a little meat wrapped up for Sarah, my, grand, my great grandmother for whom my daughter is named. And so, uh, you know, I know about that little rich little community that they had there. And my mama talks about nobody ever calling her out of her name because like you said, she lived in a little colored enclave. enclave. Mm -hmm. And in that enclave, everybody, like the, the doctor and the lawyer were on this cross street. Mm -hmm. And the poor people with the outhouse like her, which is shame because they didn't have an inside bathroom. They were on this street, but you were still in the same little neighborhood. Right. right. And uh, she met my daddy. Now my daddy's people, they were from Alabama. Um, they didn't own nothing. Uh, Grandpa, we know they sharecropped. And all I know for sure, and Sarah may have learned more from auntie, is that he had to leave the area because they were going to kill him. We don't know he what- He had a distillery, Moonshine. The white people found the, the distillery. Okay, right. It was his Moonshine. You know, he had a little, Grandpa always had a little business, but this is survival. Side hustle, as we call it these days. <laughs> right. So yeah, that. so he had to get out. And they ended up, they had some people who had gone ahead of them to Buffalo. And he and his children, um, I think the oldest had already left, Coralie, and the rest of them went on up north. Um, 
when they got there, they didn't know anything and, and their cousins there treated them and they were stupid. And so um, daddy, they told daddy he couldn't go to the regular high school because he wasn't smart enough and they put and he went to a trade school. Now my father was a brilliant man, but they didn't know any better. So he went to the trade school. He didn't even realize that it wasn't like the regular school till he was up in there. But uh, he joined, you know, during the Korean War, he, he was in the service and he was stationed in Petersburg, Virginia where he met my mama. She was uh, 17. And then he went off to Korea. And then when he came back, uh, he went back up to Buffalo. And my mama's mama, meanwhile, you know, for survival would hire herself out, trying to just find work. Was it that industrial resolution? Well, I don't even think it was, she was thinking industry, she was thinking survival. Her her grand, her father, aunt, grandma, Sarah Jackson's husband sexually abused her as did some of his friends. She'd run away once with a little dog. She talks about running away and this man picking her up and taking her and her little dog to what was a brothel. And she was real young and they treated her so nice. The ladies there, they were just so nice to her. And um, then he said, you need to go home. And he sent her home. And then one day he showed up at her door with her dog. Um, but you know, to survive, she would get jobs in different places. And one job she got, because she had a friend from Virginia who had gone up to New York and she got a job up there. And when mama um, was 18, she went to Rochester because dad was, yeah, daddy was back, was coming back from 18, 19, no, she was probably 19. He was coming back from Korea. And so she went up to Rochester and found a little job, secretarial or no, working in a dress shop. Mm. And uh, she and daddy married when she was 20. Uh, all his family was up there. Um, she didn't have anybody. She was an only child. Uh, and that's where I was born, up, up there. Um, and I like, yeah, I never had any strong desire to go south because my grandmother, my father's mother um, had then moved to Arizona with one of my aunties. And she was, uh, every year she would get the Greyhound bus pass and just travel across the country and visit every grandchild. <laughs> and she made quilts and she would give every grandchild, she made a quilt for every grandchild. And she would repair your quilt if it was tattered when she got to your house. Um, and now we still had people, daddy still had people in um, Alabama and every once in a while we'd go down to Uniontown, Alabama. Um, but I wasn't having any, I mean, daddy stayed connected with his people, but it wasn't like he was like, let's go back to live. Mm -hmm. But he was just very connected. And I remember once going down with the whole family, a family reunion and we were at Aunt Pinky's house and no, Aunt Sally's house. And, and you know, she didn't have a bathroom, but she was getting ready to put a bathroom in and she wanted everybody to know. So she had the pink toilet and tub sitting in the yard for like months. So everybody was put it in the house. And we went down for the family reunion because daddy's people would do that almost every year or every other year up until recently. And um, I remember the chickens running around and I wasn't feeling the chickens. And I wasn't feeling the outhouse. And they had killed a hog, but then we were Seventh-day Adventists, so then they killed a goat. They just killed the goat so that Buddy's children could eat. And uh, I remember that some of the kids were going to go to the pool, and Daddy said we couldn't go to the pool because the pool in Uniontown at that time, and that was probably like around 1970, um, was segregated. And what they would do 
is after the white children, after the black children swam, they would drain the pool, clean it out, so the white children can come and swim. Now we can swim after the white children, but the white children couldn't swim after us. And he was like, you're not getting, no. <laughs> no, you're not gonna get in that pool. Uh, how I ended up here was that the same grandmama who was in Tucson, um, my auntie had married a man from St. Helena and he wanted to go home. And they all came home with my cousins and my several, several cousins. And my youngest cousin got sick. He was sick when they came here and they didn't understand what it was. And then it, by the time it was diagnosed, it was too late. And when he died at 18, it broke my grandma's heart and her kidneys stopped functioning. So they had just buried their son and now my grandmother was very ill. I was in New York. Um, my life was, I was dealing with my own stuff, sexual assault, the abandonment of my church. Cause you know, since I was assaulted sexually I must've done something. Right. And uh, my father's new marriage and, 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 and they didn't like need me like grieving up in the room. So they put me on a Greyhound bus to take care of grandma. And uh, 1983, one way ticket to Beaufort, South Carolina, uh, to auntie and uncle's house and to grandma's trailer on Ladies Island. That's how I got here. And it's funny to think that I don't feel like a southerner. <laughs> like what, what would that entail for us to feel like Southerners? Do we have to be born here? <laughs> I think oh, that man, is a wonderful that. question. And I, um, as all of you were talking and, and having the sim similar response, particularly about the becomias and Benyas, I was thinking about how much I love um, Geechee Experience, the platform with uh, Akua Page and um, Chris Cato, because one, they've just created a Gullah Geechee flag. And they have been very intentional about letting folks know um, this is for Black folk. This is for Black Americans. And Gullah Geechee people aren't just in the Gullah Geechee quarter in the four states. We are everywhere. I also think that certainly there are many valid and historical reasons why Black people in any area felt the need to gatekeep, right? Um, and also something that I talked to my mom about and a lot of my friends about in um, Dana Knuckles, the sidereal astrolog astrologist talks about decolonizing our survival instinct. And so recognizing, recognizing and validating all that we have done to survive. Yes. All, all, all the reasons that we have to survive, we've had to survive, all the conditions that we've had to make choices in and holding space and grace for that. And then also saying, okay, well, what are we gonna do differently? Because um, like Miss Barbara, who I've been talking to kind of regularly so I can stay alive, was pointing out we are, um, we're fighting the same battles, but without the same tools yes, as yes. our ancestors. And so what does it mean to foster the, the, the tools that we need or, you know, cultivate the, the new tools, the tools that we can imagine? And so I'm really, really emotional. I, um, I think that y'all know how magical y'all are, but it is special to hear about all the paths and stories and love and family that led you to where you are. And so that, uh, yeah, cause I've been sitting up under y'all feet a long time, <laughs> a long time. You were a little, 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 little. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And it is, um, it's just such a gift. So I, I know the South is a portal 
All right, one more question, and then um, I'll just technically see what y'all want to do. So I am engaging uh, sexuality and gender, and um, wanting to to think about that in different ways. And I know, um, Mama, you spoke to becoming becoming a woman here in the South. Uh, Miss Jan, you talked about um, not necessarily in the South, but like getting a license and going out and getting it, getting into stuff. So <laughs> what, I, what I want to um, what I want to hear from y'all is like, what were messages? What were you told about your gender and your sexuality when you got here? Like, what were you told about? You're a black girl, and this means this. And then, as you have lived your lives, how how have you come to find what it what it means inherently to you to be who you are in your body to to be in the roles that are important to you, not so much based on what they told us blackness or black girlhood or black womanhood was about. But um, yeah. Wow. I know. <laughs> When I find out, I will let you know. <laughs> no, seriously. I have, I have a, wow. I, okay, go ahead. I'm sorry, Jim. I have a very specific memory. Because mm -hmm. um, you specified being in the South, how these questions are informed by being in the South. And I'd been here maybe a month <clears throat> and was at a party at Vanessa Niles' house. Y'all know Vanessa. Um, or it was, anyway, she invited me. I don't think it was at her house, but I was talking to um, a man. I didn't know who he was married to. I just, he was talking to me. So I was talking to him and we were laughing and people started coming and gathering around him. And it was like, I had intruded on something and I, I didn't understand that. And later someone said to me, you don't talk to somebody else's husband in public like that. They said the same thing to me, Jan. <laughs> I know nothing about that. I mean, everybody, I'm a musician. I've been working with men only for the past 20 years. What do you mean I can't talk to men? I had to get that shit together right away. Cause those women, <laughs> those women was coming after me, which I did anyway, but you know, I, I was earning it up in there. So <laughs> that was a very strong message mm -hmm. that, and you single, who tells you what to do? Like, mm -hmm. excuse me? <laughs> Wow. And learning that I could move in certain circles and certain places, I could accomplish certain things. If I had a man with me, didn't have to be my husband, just had to be a man. He didn't have to be very bright. He just had to be a man Never. with a voice. He <laughs> <laughs> don't got to be bright. Nope. Nope. He's got to be alive. Got to be alive. Got to have a dick. Got to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, absolutely see i didn't have that experience i think because i met ron um yeah. within the month a couple of months after getting here and also when i was in public i was with my uncle yeah. and i never really thought about that but my uncle simeon i was always with him i was riding with him yes yeah so i was never interacting with men by myself 
I remember my first weird thing was just in terms of body identity. You know, growing up in upstate New York with these skinny little white girls I went to school with and little flat behind little white girls. And, you know, the idea of what was beautiful. And one of the things I always struggled with was, you know, I've got big limbs. And I remember walking down the street down in Beaufort and someone yelling out, girl, look at them big legs. Now, <laughs> I, know, I know that that was a song of That was a thing. <laughs> but the thing was, I was in the South and these people were like appreciating my big legs. Yeah. Now I know now I'd be like, y'all gonna be yelling at the car at people. <laughs> but it was a, it was a, a, oh, that the body that I had been battling all my life mm -hmm. was in some places considered desirable and beautiful. Mm -hmm. Now I ain't wanting any men to stop their car <laughs> and interact with me. No thanks. But it was me thinking, oh, that the, the, standards that I was um, identifying, determining my beauty by when I was going to these integrated schools with these little white girls and looking at Seventeen magazine. Yeah. Um, yeah. That that wasn't the only, you know, um, arbiter of beauty or desirability. And, you know, at that point, still the whole idea that men should, you should be desired by men, mm -hmm. even though if they actually desire you and do something, it's your fault. Um, exactly. <laughs> which I was dealing with, with the sexual assault, because I remember, you know, telling someone about it and their first thing was like, what did you do? What did you do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and even that happened, even as recently as, you know, um, my mother before her dementia went to this far, asking me four years ago, but what were you wearing? And, Okay. I was driving and I considered opening the door. <laughs> Just a thought. We can have I thoughts. <laughs> but I thought about it. But yes, so, you know, there was that, that thing between one, as a woman, you should be desirable. Men should desire you. You should be feminine enough to attract their attention. This was your job. And yet, if you do, it's also your fault. And it's yes. partly too, because I grew Some, up. If something goes farther than then we think is acceptable and something happens to you that's on you well it's your fault because you know he couldn't help it you're there you out there in the street with your big legs right. so uh <laughs> <laughs> look at you out here living minding your own damn business yeah yeah, yeah. i i i don't know i'm this is a, a safe place of honesty so i can say when i was a teenager i was kind of a loose cannon because I felt very protected. I had two older brothers who were known to be badasses and a father who many thought was, was crazy and would carry a gun and shoot anybody that hurt his girls, including my brothers. You know, um, so I felt very protected. The flip side of that coin is you felt like you had to be protected. Right. Okay. Like you needed protection. Mm -hmm. So I would flip my little tail around and do what I felt like doing and who I felt like doing. And if it got to the point where I didn't like it or felt uncomfortable, I could always fall back on the men that were in my life. Mm -hmm. Fast forward some years into my adulthood. Um, 
when I was doing some volunteer work at the United Nations, and again, I have always surrounded myself with very protective men, instinctually. I don't think I deliberately set out to do it, but always did, and met Sarah's father, and there was a discussion amongst the group that I was with, the volunteers, should we let her go out with him? These were not my brothers or my father or my men in any way. These were other people working on, we were working on a campaign about free South Africa. So these were just people that I worked with, like, you know, not even job worked with, spare time worked with. And um, when we were decidedly together, they made a point of always saying, well, that's her husband. She's his wife about Sarah's. And he, uh, he agreed because according to his culture, if, if I was designated as his, I was his wife. Um, fast forward again, when I was in the ministry, I ended up heading delegations to Africa. So it was me and two or three or at one time up to five college students, medical students, twice in Kenya, once in Nigeria, but I was responsible for their welfare, for their safety, for them getting what they needed to get, for for us doing the missionary work that we were supposed missionary, you know, <laughs> the indoctrinations that we were supposed to do. Right, right. And had developed this talent by that time of surrounding myself with men who are very protective, very, very patriarchal, very um, just, you know, protective. And like Jan said, they didn't have to be smart or accomplished <laughs> or anything. They just had to be men and, and knew how to somehow you know, I never analyzed this before, but just knew how to have them around. Mm -hmm. Always had them around. Always had, uh, you know, there was one guy, Brother James, always had somebody, you know, Brother James, we can't lift this. This is too heavy. Brother James, we need this. Brother James, one of the students wants to go out and she needs somebody with her because it might get dark before she comes back. Brother James, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Always, always, always. And this is, that's a profound question, Sarah. That's a very profound question because I don't know if I consciously associated my sexuality with my need to feel protected. I do know that when I came to South Carolina, I settled here because it felt like home. There was a spiritual and vibrational connection, but it also felt safe. I surrounded again by men who wanted to keep me safe. More than they wanted a relationship, they wanted to keep me safe. There's something, and I don't know if that was the ancestors or the angels or something that I had developed as a youth because of my upbringing, but they wanted to keep me safe. And still to this day, 
you know, I, I woke up this morning with Bill saying, are you all right on the phone, seven something in the morning and Tommy calling me saying, I'm just checking on your car again. And, <laughs> and, and while we were on this call, Pete calling and I know Pete calls to see if I'm okay. Always, always appreciating, but needing some male figure around to keep me safe. I can remember being at a party at your parents' house and talking to Ron. Me and Ron were off in the corner talking. Me. We might have been talking about something I was cooking for your family. I don't know what we were talking about. Something completely innocent and you're not innocuous. And somebody pulled me aside and said, you know, that's Natalie's husband. You don't need to be talking. <laughs> not at their house. <laughs> I don't know how you got here. If you know anyone here. <laughs> yeah. Whoa. You're you in Natalie's house talking to her husband like that? Go off in the funny. corner talking by yourself? Mm. And I'm like, what the, what the, what, what? And I don't know whether Ron sensed it or he knew it or he heard it, but it wasn't, it wasn't five minutes before he came and put his arms around my shoulder and put my head on his, I'm, I'm saying, don't do this, they're going to get me. <laughs> <laughs> But he did it and he stayed there. He stayed there a few minutes. And he said, I, I got I'm going outside. You wanna come outside? And I was like, Yeah. <laughs> because it wasn't the men, it was the women who wanted to attack me. Mm -hmm. And I think they thought they were protecting Natalie from me. But what? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's funny. That I, 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 did, I didn't know that story. Um and because <laughs> my own personal way of moving through the world and maybe my own particular blinders. Yeah, I had brothers, but my brother, my older brother, he might let me get my ass kicked. You know, he wasn't like, <laughs> daddy was protective. Um, yes, but I spent so much of my time sort of feeling like, oh, nobody's going to come for me to, to save me. Um, you know, cause I, I talk about integrating schools or I'm the only black person mm -hmm. in the whole school. And ain't nobody to get your back, you know. And I remember this one school where the teacher made me crawl around the room on my hands and knees while the other children sat at their desk and I pulled the skin right off my knees. And I went home and I told my daddy about it and I never heard another word. I found out later after he was dead that he had went and talked to the teacher. I would, it would have been good to know that. See, but my father would have made a show out of it. He would have gone up there with a baseball bat. See, no, my father, <laughs> he, he was. <laughs> I never heard no coups. All I knew was if I was, on, I better keep myself safe by assimilating as best as best I can. So um, I didn't have that, even though I kind of knew, like in South Carolina, particularly, um, people took me, men helped them take me seriously. My uncle, my yes. husband, yes. they helped them take me seriously. Um, and a show. Yeah. The show of dependence was good. Um, I was never the kind of woman to be like, this is my man. I never ever was to this very day. <laughs> I don't know who he talked to, what he doing. I don't know what is in his wallet. I don't know what's in his phone. I don't care. <laughs> you like, he like PJ Moore and I don't want to go through your phone. <laughs> That's right. Does Barbara know the cuts? <laughs> All the cuts. That's right. I um yeah, I love this so much. I particularly love the distinction between like protection and safety. I was thinking out loud and recording the stream of consciousness the other day and 
you know, there's a, I don't know, like a brand, a movement. There's a big thing about protecting black women, protect black women. Yeah, and a yeah. lot of, a lot of men, a lot of black sure men will thing. say that. Yeah. yeah. Protect black women. And I was thinking one, like, as you're saying, uh, under patriarchy, the men get to decide who their women are that are worth the yes. protection, right? It's it's the women that are in relationship to them that they that they possess in whatever way, whether it be sister, mother, wife, girlfriend, cousin, whoever is deemed worthy of protection. But it's not that we are worthy of safety, mm-hmm. because if we were worthy of safety, we would transform the conditions for which we are not safe in. Yes. And so often we need we need a man around us to validate us, to be taken more seriously, to be protected from other men. Yes. That that no one will hold accountable or even as Miss Barbara was saying, the women who have have internalized the misogyny. Yes. And for for whatever reasons are thinking this really rigid thing. This is how a relationship is. This is a relationship that is valid. You cannot you cannot speak with this person. You you can only hold this role and you are you are less valid if you don't if you don't hold this role. And um, I love my brother Simeon so much. (laughs) I'm so proud of him. I've been working with him on uh, on, uh, misogyny. Like, I know it's me and I'm proud of myself for the work that I've been putting in. (laughs) But I remember um, this this realization a few years ago before I was actually like, oh, I got to talk to him about this. And I, I was like, you know, if if I was just a woman in the world, if I was me, if I was my um my black queer self who feels like I should be able to do what the hell I want and, and find my pleasure where it is. If I wasn't his sister, I think he 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 wouldn't he he would be looking at me sideways mm-hmm. because women are supposed to be free. Mm-hmm. And I know he loves me. There's no doubt about that. It was the realization. I think for me, like, oh, it's always, it's not even about the men that choose you as, as a romantic partner. It is very, you know, I will protect my sister. Mm-hmm. I will protect my mom. I will protect my homegirls. I will protect my woman. But again, <laughs> nobody can articulate what they're protecting us from, right? Or hold, right. Or hold anybody accountable for. And we don't, we don't get to identify what that is. We don't get to, to, to define. It always has to be at the behest of some male person who says oh yeah we we can call that we can call that but right yes they have to have a consensus like well yeah i think that um yeah like the same same with white people like no i guess what you're saying is right and maybe you know we hope you get over that but yeah the very (laughs) same way it's all in their determination like all that i'm learning in school is basically patriarchy and white supremacy give white people and men the benefit of the doubt all the time. Mm-hmm. And so if you are always given the benefit of the doubt all the time, you cannot see yourself. Mm-hmm. You are never held accountable. Nobody doesn't need to be held accountable. And if you're never ever held accountable, you are a terrorist. Mm-hmm. And we have to, um, I know I got to say that shit with my chest because y'all, y'all did not even keep playing in my face. So the last, the last question I think, okay, I'm going to play around with two. You can talk about what is in your toolbox, what is in your mojo bag, what is your root work that, um, that sustains you, that holds you together. I love that uh, throughout, throughout this conversation, y'all have just been dropping names of other Black folk, in particular Black women who have made you possible and who you've built community with over decades. And um, 
so I know that's in the toolbox, like the relationships that you foster and the ways you're able to grow with one another. But yeah, talk to me about what nurtures you, what fortifies you, what sustains you, what are, um... oh, okay. Yeah, that, you can talk to me about that. I also want to know if you think the versions of you, however old each of y'all were when y'all moved to the South, what y'all think they think of y'all now? <laughs> or, and or if you have anything, if you have any notes for them, if you want to be like, look, girl, look at, look at me, or, you know. <laughs> Yeah, something like that. And it doesn't, you don't have to like adhere to the question really, just anything y'all want to share about any of that stuff. And this has just been really generative and I'm very grateful for y'all and that y'all are alive. I do want to say to her, you did it, girl. You did it. You got it done. It wasn't what you thought it was going to be, but you did it. Um, because Throughout whatever the experiences have been here, you know, I've been wild and woolly and I've been um, very um, academic and I've just been, now I'm just like whatever I am today. And to give myself permission to be and do and live that way is such a gift and I'm so grateful for it. I kept looking for it outside of myself. And I found it in myself. And that's probably the it I'm talking about. Um, and what sustains me? My relationship with whatever the creator is. <laughs> he, she, it, they, I don't know. <laughs> but whatever that is, that relationship has become so well entren entrenched in me. Or so, so much of what I am, it takes care of me. And I, I become, I have become, and continue, continue to work on this is just aware, just aware that it's, it's always there in every little thing. Cause you know, I, I think I came down here thinking, okay, God can do this, but I got to do that. You know, to get to work my way through, not necessarily, you could just let it all go, you know, and that's right. To live into that though is is the work for me. Has always been, but I think I'm closer than I've ever been to that being my worldview, regardless of what I'm faced with. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. Because at any point along the way, I could have said, fuck this. Because <laughs> you know, it's just way, way too hard. Um, but the rewards are a freedom I couldn't have imagined. Beautiful. <laughs> right on. Yes. Right on. Amen. I think in my in my in my youthful arrogance, what I saw was as being exceptional was always somebody's opinion about me, mm -hmm. somebody's view on, on who I was, 
what I was, what my worth was, what I had or did of value. As I've matured, a lot of that has just washed away. Some of it, I can't even take credit for it. I just woke up and it wasn't there anymore. You know, it was more a <laughs> whatever, you know, kind of thing. But as that washed away, I was able to see, or am more able to see, how incredible others are, how exceptional others are, how magical others are. And it's just a thrill for me. It's a thrill for me every single time. I can't say that I've ever done a reading where I haven't been thrilled by that universal energy of exceptional humanity. Astoundingly exceptional humanity. Creators just, I've always been drawn to creative people, but I never could and probably still can't articulate that I can feel that they're very much tapped into magic or what we say is magic. Mm -hmm. And what we say is magic is simply the fullness of the human experience. Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't know if I'm talking in circles or if I'm, if I'm able to express it the way I feel it, but it's like, I am more me now than I have ever, ever, ever been. Mm -hmm. And because I'm more me, I can appreciate other people being more them. And I can get out of the way of, you know, this is what is in my face, but this is what the universe is seeing in you. You know, and it, it enables you on so many levels. It enables me to do what I do on so many levels. Somebody can come and get on my table and they be in pain and moaning and sick. And all I can see is a healthy person running around, jumping up and down. I can, you know, it, I can see that. And it's not because I'm, you know, whatever I can see, you know, like I've got the juju to see. The magic is just the human condition. Mm -hmm. It is just pushing past, you know, the illusion of frailty, the illusion of pain, the illusion of unwholeness in a universe that only wants us to be healthy mm -hmm. and abundant and whole. And they want it for me and they want it for you. And they want it for everybody. They want it for all of us. And that's a magic that I did not even know existed in a younger version of myself. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. I thought spirituality had something to do with church. So I spent all that time in the ministry and traveling around and telling people about, you know. I, and then I thought it was in the rituals that I was learning. And I'm growing more and more to understand that it's just in us as human beings. So that's my magic. I am so grateful for your magic. I am listening to you guys talk and I want to say, how do I sustain y'all? My relationship with y'all, each of you, um, I remember the day I met Barbara sitting behind the counter, um, thirsty, and she gave me water. I remember when I met Jan, and I think I met you, and then I actually showed up at your house, like, hey, I just liked you. There's something about you. 
Um, and then when you said, hey, let's get together and mastermind, that was your idea. Mm -hmm. And so we did. Remember that. Um, yeah, and we've been like in relation, we committed to each other. Yeah. I, I am in a committed relationship with y'all yeah. um, for growth. Yeah. And we have been now for almost two decades. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Um, Sarah, you, you are um, my daughter. You are one of my best friends. Mm -hmm. And your energy, your creative energy, your willingness to engage me with how your mind works and, to, and how my, my mind works, when we do that, I'm like, <sighs> you know, has this, this is how I, this is how. Um, the other tools in my box, you know, art, creative process, which connects me to the universe um, in ways that I don't even understand. Sometimes I, I realized recently that everything that I do now and to present myself in the world are the things, are the gifts I've had since I was very small. Yeah. yeah. You yeah. know, uh, my mother and my grandmother taught me how to speak in public. My grandmother was a poet and I sort of learned that magic of words. I learned to sing in my home, hearing my grandmother sing old songs, listening to harmony. I learned baritone from my daddy. <laughs> you know, uh, the first art kit I ever got, 1973, wrapped up for my birthday. Um, and you know, in some of these ways, I am all of those things. I am still also the 22 year old woman who got off that bus, thought that she was thrown away. I thought they threw me away. They said, go take care of grandma, but I knew they were just trying to get me out of the house so daddy and Gloria could have a marriage without my ass up in there suffering, without dealing with my being a rape victim survivor, without, I thought they were like, we don't know what to do with her, boom. And uh, I was a few years, many years later, I met someone who said, oh, they saved you. You were supposed to be where you are. I was supposed to be here. Absolutely. Yeah. And the catalyst for that, which felt like, <laughs> really God, <laughs> was brought me here, brought me here to this place where I'm living this full life as a creative person, where I am channeling so much through my work. And, um, and that I'm in relationship with you guys and that I am Sarah's mama, that I am Simeon's mama, that I am uh, this woman who puts her feet out in this Southern dirt barefoot on this ground every day. Um, I'm so grateful for that. I'm so grateful for that. See, I don't have one answer. I don't know what I would say to the 22 year old. I mean, I know you weren't thrown away, baby. This is how this was gonna work. And there was nothing that was happening then that you have not survived. And yes, you are deeply scarred, as are we all. Mm -hmm. But when I was writing um, the Harriet Tubman play, mm -hmm. I was writing that play and I heard her mama say, Scars are thicker than skin. Mm -hmm. My scars are my strength. And uh, so I'm grateful for that, you know? So that's that's really cool. Magic. It's real cool. It's magic. Real. Yeah, I used to tell my mama that I knew y'all would be out at the beach howling at the moon. <laughs> and I, um, <laughs> I remember when y'all were doing- There was a time. No. <laughs> 
y'all went to um Miss Eva Tiles and was doing the waist beads, the belly beads. Y'all really yep. been on it. Y'all been on it for a long time. And mama was talking about, shout out to Heirloom Spirits, which is a new like spiritual botanica in Port Royal in Buford. And she was saying, you know, this, this kind of space where we can get crystals and, and black things just like this right here. This was not here when, when we were here, when me and Barbara and Jen and, and Ife and Arian. And I was like, but mama, y'all laid the grids. We made the call. That's right. You made the call. Yeah. That's right. We are because you are. And I am just so, so grateful. I don't even think I have another question. I am learning, like the old songs say, my grandma days always sing, um, farther along we'll understand it, farther along we'll yeah. understand why. And it only only this year, I'm like, oh yeah, for real. <laughs> we really understand, we really will understand it a little bit. Really really I've always wanted to know, just tell me everything so I can figure it out right now. And that's not really <laughs> how it goes. <laughs> that's not really how it goes. And that's the gift of time and the gift of life and the gift of intergenerational community and um, recognizing that we need each other to survive and that we learn from one another and we can take what works and we can leave the rest. But like, this is so very much like how we get free and how we survive and how we center on what, what we have had to learn and overcome to position ourselves upright in this crooked ass room, like yep. yelling yep. at my professors and my classmates, like, yo, y'all don't know nothing about what I've had to do to get here. But it's like, of course they don't. They've always been given the benefit of the doubt. So they have never been held accountable for anything. And so they are not growing. Mm -hmm. And like Ms. Barbara said, what is it spiritually bankrupt? Um, if they were focusing on what we have had to learn to survive everything would fall apart everything would completely transform it wouldn't be the way that it is and so my other good friend maya talks about our inner current like our our our, our, our unique signature based on all these things and how it is aligned with the the greater current mm -hmm. and there's so much about the framing or the society i i often call it the crooked room that that forces us to contort that separates us from our minds our bodies and our spirits and doesn't allow us to tap into the inner current but when we do tap into that inner current when we start to externalize it um not only does it put pressure on the framing it puts pressure on the crooked room it puts pressure on yeah. these things that yes. are rooted yes. in nothing yes. but lies and like yes. false scarcity and um yes not the universe it it, it 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 put its pressure on that but it aligns with the greater current and the greater current is for our good it's yeah, always yeah. working in our favor and we are always loved and um i'm just so happy to know y'all you know what i'm so proud of you i am so pleased and i am so my heart is so full that you are even interested in any of this <laughs> um and that you pursue it with such vigor to make it available to others in your cohort. But for those of us who are on, you know, older to look at you and say, it matters that we do this. It matters. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. I am because y'all are, and I am so very grateful. Barbara, didn't your, didn't your Sarah used to say we over here like doing seances and stuff? Witchies, what you put? <laughs> yes, now me and Miss Barbara Sarah are about to be bartering on some witchy shit. So we are, we are following in the Absolutely. lineage. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs>
must say, I hope that you enjoyed that robust conversation. I want to say, secondly, I know you did. I know it blessed you. I know if it blessed you half as much as it blessed me that uh, you having a better day. You filled with all kind of thoughts and feelings and you are welcome. <laughs> LOL, but for real, I, uh, I'm really, I'm really proud of it. We recorded that conversation back in March, March 9th, and I was in the throes and the dungeon and the hell of my PhD program. Uh, first semester and like I said I just asked if I could jump on their zoom call and ask them some questions and it was such a blessing it was so full there are uh, yeah I almost just want to let everything sit like I would love to hear back from y'all if y'all have questions if you if you if you would think about asking some of the elders some of your community members these types of questions what types of things are you hearing how is hearing from these three black women of different generations um, impacting how you see your own life and the lessons that you learned about gender, about your sexuality, about your place and home? But I do want to spend some time talking about um, some of the things that came up for me. And additionally, since I'm giving myself grace and not making things harder for myself than they have to be. I'm just gonna combine these reflections with the purple and green segment. I had initially thought I'm going to give my reflections of the conversation and then I'm going to go back and record another segment, but they all go together and I don't wanna do that and I'm tired. So um, if you did not hear uh, episode one, the purple and green segment is an ode to the Alice Walker quote from The Color Purple. I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field somewhere and not notice it. People think pleasing God is all God cares about, but any fool living in the world can see it always trying to please us back. And so the purple and green segment is simply, obviously spirit, God, the universe, nature is trying to please us back, is affirming us back. As I said before, so easy in this crooked room, in this white supremacist, patriarchal, capitalist, anti-black, Western imperialist society to think that we are nothing, to think that all there is for us to do is show and prove that that, that we are worthless and we weren't born um, with value. And when we sit still and when we observe and um, when we listen, we we get the truth. We get the truth. We notice the purple. We notice the green. We notice the color. But when we sit with ourselves, when we sit with our surroundings, when we slow down, when we notice the color, when we notice the feeling, we feel the intention, we feel the vibration, we feel the spirit, we feel the affirmation of our own being, simply being. <sighs> That's it. So yes, purple and green. <clears throat> I want to start with um, one of my favorite quotes and move out from there. This is also what that interview with my mom, Miss Barbara and Miss Jan, reminds me of. This is from Soul Talk, The New Spirituality of African American Women by Akasha Gloria Hull. And this is a quote from Masani Alexis DeVoe. We were beginning to really express black women's consciousness in a way that it had not been expressed. 
when we come to the 80s, that consciousness was no longer in disguise. And at the time that we threw the covers off, we were free to do and really become. Once that happened, everybody got big. Every black woman was able to tap into every other black woman and was able to tap into every black woman in history and to a channeling. This is what we did. Even people who were not conscious did. Even if they tapped into one person, even if they tapped into some black actress, even if they tapped into a black woman's magazine, not to mention those of us who were consciously tapping, we were really blowed up, you know? But we had all that going. Alice Walker, Tony K. Bambara, Tony Morrison, all of them, all of us, all of that. All of that was stimulating consciousness, so there was no way we could not get big. That consciousness could not be confined to the borders of North America. So then traveling connected us to the global consciousness. Having a sense of the cultural experience of other women connected us to that global consciousness. Once we knew ourselves, we had to know the planet. And again, that is a, a quote from Masani Alexis DeVoe from Soul Talk, The New Spirituality of African-American Women by Akasha Gloria Hull. And um, <clears throat> yeah, the words stand alone as it relates to black women getting big <laughs> and um, black women tapping into a collective consciousness and black women seeing themselves and this being the case for all of us if we if we can we can allow our, our allow ourselves to do so because as um alexis devoe says you know even those who are not consciously doing it we're doing it <laughs> and um that is that is so beautiful to me i remember listening to an episode of how to survive the end of the world i think that was the same episode i already quoted with alexis Colin gums and they were talking about this book soul talk and how I want to say maybe they were being born, you know, mid, late 80s, I guess, around the time that the, around this period of time that these women were writing and talking about that they were they were born into that into that energy. And and we all are born and have been born into some very potent ass times. And when we can lean into ourselves, we can lean into each other where we can be still. Ooh, we can be still. And I know it's so hard. It's hard for me. As much as I'm an advocate, as much as I'm always quoting the nap, the nap bishop, the nap ministry, as much as I know that my body requires a lot of stillness, um, that my body requires a lot of just sitting and being, that my purpose, that my work, that the work that I do requires a lot of solitude and stillness and not... Um, not physically moving, it is still so hard for me to, uh, to feel like that's okay. And when we're able to do it, <laughs> we might in fact notice that everything is okay. And maybe we won't, right? Maybe if we're still, we'll, we, what we will actually acknowledge is everything is not okay. Right. But then, then what do we do? Well, then what do we do from there? And. I think there is certainly a tendency because of capitalism, yes, which which requires us to to work to live. Um, and also an unconscious knowing that if we slow down, we will feel, we will become aware, we will have to acknowledge and sit with 
sit with our choices, sit with our environment, sit with the things that we don't actually have control over, sit with what we thought we we were telling ourselves we were actually managing that that that, that <laughs> to acknowledge that we were actually being managed, all of the above, but um you know the alternative. The alternative to going, 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 because if I go, 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 I won't feel. The alternative to that is tapping into the consciousness. It's <laughs> tapping into the divine. It's being present, being here now, and uh, seeing what we really have to work with. Um, as I said, I love the conversation. I've listened to it several times. Something that stuck out to me in the interview, one of many things, was uh, Miss Jan and Miss Barbara in particular talking about their experiences moving to the South as it relates to gender and sexuality. Uh, one of my best friends, Crystal, who I met in college in South Carolina, is from New Jersey. And, um, I graduated in 2012, where she and I are still unpacking um, the misogyny, the violence that that we both experienced in undergrad, but particular um, for her as it relates to, yeah, I think the ways that Black women are socialized and conditioned regardless of where we are, but in particular, uh, In particular, how she was perceived as a Northern Black woman and the messages that she got in particular, but I think that we all get about who is worthy of respect, who is worthy of protection, who is worthy of regard, and the performances and posturing that is required for us to be worthy of that. And um, like I said, that shit we're collectively unpacking, but as it relates to Miss Jan and Miss Barbara coming from, Miss Barbara coming from, um, New Jersey, Miss Jan coming from Detroit, and these messages that they got about who it was okay to talk to, and essentially who do you think you are if you're not partnered? Um, if, if 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 a man is married, you don't even you don't even converse with him. <laughs> you don't <laughs> you don't regard him. <laughs> um, yeah, just like that's the real shit that we need to that we need to be sitting down and talking about when we have conversations about like, you know, I see some men saying things like, you know, marriage ain't the same as it was before. Our grandmamas did all this. Women today don't do all the shit that our grandmamas did. And it's like, did you talk to your grandma about how she felt about doing what you know she did? Did you ever ask her? Did you ask her if she felt like she had a choice? Are you are you are, are you grateful for the sacrifice? Do you think your grandma is a martyr? Um, she's a person, and you know that goes certainly in a patriarchal society. Um, particular roles are delegated to to particular folks based on the gender binary that we have been presented with, and yet it is true for anybody and anybody. Um, the things that we have, 
that we have had to choose and sacrifice and the ways that we have had to posture to to be perceived as valid to be perceived as as worthy of care forget care america's never cared about care (laughs) but i don't know to be perceived as as who you say you are which is actually who we told you you are there's there's a lot that's required of you and we're sitting here now in the present like but look what they did and you see they did it like this like please get a life or just <laughs> be a little more critical be a little more interrog and, and and um interrogate a little more uh be more thoughtful about why you make decisions recognizing that our parents our aunts our uncles our community members our grandparents the people that in our lives are, are human beings like us and in particular the violence the violence that we are constantly surviving um, because of course the current conversations about critical race theory which is actually more about the fact that America as a whole wants to continue to lie and indoctrinate us about American exceptionalism. They don't want us to know what really happened, what's really happening. Uh, They want us to believe the myth of manifest destiny, which is just violence, which is just violence, which is just, if I want it, I'll take it. And I can take it based on the fact that I have a penis and God has a penis (laughs) and God is a man with a penis and he said, this is ours. If we believe that, we can never account for the violence that we have been surviving. We can never account for the actual conditions that our people have been making choices in. If we believe the lie, we can really say, I am not my ancestors. Who? <laughs> Even the first part of the quote is stupid, but I am not my ancestors. You can get these hands. You are, you are indeed your ancestors, for one. And two, we have no idea what our ancestors were surviving um, because of how we're taught. And it is only when we, when we speak amongst ourselves, when we talk amongst each other, when we ask ourselves these questions, when we think about, well, how, how is my life working? What are, what, are, what are the things that plague me every day? What are, what are the things that make me scared or sad or unable to get out of bed? Let me ask somebody. And, and no lie, of course, every, everybody is not eager to talk about their pain or talk about their experiences or I would like to throw out like Miss Jan pointed out towards the end of the interview they don't think that it matters to anybody and certainly the ways that we're taught in the school system is like black history is a thing that happens in February and I guess happened one time and it's actually slavery and the civil rights movement (laughs) and Harriet Tubman and MLK and Barack Obama and strangely enough like black people were doing these things but it wasn't because there was violence it was just somehow black people got here and we was doing things and we talk about it in February to the extent that I'm in a PhD program 
encountering everything from the canon, everything from, oh, I just forgot the white man's name and I'm not mad. Damn, I've been saying his name for months because I'm so annoyed. Anyway, some white man from 1689, <laughs> a founding father who had uh, investments in the um, Royal African Company, the um, who said something like, if you have land, if you have a wife, if you have the means to get money, if you got property, you should just be happy. Ain't no reason to be mad. Um, and this was in my pursuit of happiness class, essentially, if you got, if you got land, if you got a wife, if you got property, you should, you should be happy. And I'm sitting there in the class, like he's saying, if you have slaves, if you commit genocide, if you kill indigenous people and steal the land, if you own your wife and own your children, you don't got no reason to be mad. And everybody's looking at me all blank faced. I'm talking about slavery. I'm talking about Jim Crow. I'm talking about the fact that the Nazis were influenced by slavery and black code laws in the South, in America. And that's what they modeled um, the Holocaust after. And again, blank faces, blank faces, because it's like, that shit is my history. <laughs> That shit is my personal history. That's my personal family anecdotes. It's not related to them based on how we have been taught. Black history is anecdotal. The history of indigenous peoples is anecdotal. It's some, it, and, and, it, and to the extent that, yes, it is. It is passed through oral tradition, but not simply because we don't matter. Our stories and our narratives and what we have actually been surviving are left out of the narrative on purpose because if it wasn't that bad back then, then this really can't be that bad. That's something I learned regularly working at McLeod Plantation, like the types of pushback I would get, the types of shock and surprise about the realities of slavery it's like, nah, it couldn't have really been like that. Nah, you you saying you doing too much. <laughs> they wasn't really selling children. You you what you mean? No, it wasn't like that. Cause if it wasn't really like that, then this isn't really like how we saying it is. And that is the shit. I am going to end this episode right here I have more to say but we're already over an hour <laughs> and uh, I will save future reflections for a future episode thank you so much for listening for tapping in for sharing some of your time and energy with me I hope that you enjoyed I as I said will be including all of the links um, all of the articles all of the notes that I referenced in the show notes and I hope you will check in again next time.
Playbook and edited and produced by Maya S. Bob.